lessons last week, and this week we're going to be in our Old Testament, the unwritten in part of your Bible, um, the clean part of your Bible. Uh, we'd like to do both, you know, like to preach out of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has a lot of good things to teach us uh, about what a relationship with God is like. And we're going to be this morning in the book of Ruth. Uh, so if you uh, think of, of the first several books of your, of your Bible, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. This little bitty book, four chapters, it's going to take us just a month to go through. It's a short story. Uh, but the topic this morning is finding God in the darkness. And that may be a, a little incongruous for you, or you may not know exactly how that fits together, but... Uh, there's a trend, it seems to me, in uh, particularly American Christianity to act as if once you believe in Christ and once you come into a relationship with God, that it's all one continual walk in the sunshine through the fields of Shangri-La, okay? And that there's never any pain, there's never any darkness, you never go through the woods uh, where there are creatures there that go bump in the night and this kind of stuff, that there's never any of those kinds of experiences. And if you have believed that, let me assure you that that is a lie. That nothing in the Scriptures promises you that after you come into a relationship with God, that everything in life is going to be nothing but peaches except for the cream. That is not the way the Christian life is. Sometimes the Christian life means trusting God in the midst of agonizing pain and hurt and death and finding God in the darkness instead of in the light and not knowing how to find Him necessarily. And so the book of Ruth is not just about this wonderful woman who is a fantastic friend, Ruth. It's also about Naomi, this woman who has suffered greatly and who is in pain, and who in fact call, says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me the pleasant one anymore, call me Mara, call me bitter. This is not a lady who is having a great time going through life, okay? In fact, every name, I'll just preface the story by saying this, every name in the story is significant. Uh, you have, first of all, the city of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means the house of bread, okay? And you need to remember that because you're going to find out that there is no bread in the house of bread, and there's going to be a famine. Uh, you, have a, you have a man who's Naomi's husband whose name is Eli Melech. My God is king, okay? Uh, you have Naomi, the pleasant one. You have Orpah, the graceful uh, or beautiful one. You have Ruth, whose name means friendship. You have Machlon and Kilion. Uh, don't ever name your kids these. Uh, they mean weakling and dying. <laughs> okay? If you want to get a good, uh, uh, a good Old Testament name, don't pick those. Okay? Um, yeah, don't, don't do that. Okay? Um, and every name in this story is significant. And, and, the, and you'll also meet a person who's not named, and that is significant. Um, because everybody who is a person that is 
worthy of mention is actually mentioned by name. You'll meet one person who's not named. And that is a significant aspect of the story. Uh, This story is about, as I said, uh, walking with God in the darkness. And that may not be where you are right now. But I'll assure you that if that has not happened to you yet, that there will be some point in your life where you'll go through some series of events where it will feel like God is not there. And you will need, and I'll just tell you that, that that's going to happen right now, okay? Sooner or later, that's going to happen. I'll tell you that now so that you can be prepared and you can know in advance how you're to respond. And we're going to see how to respond from the book of Ruth, okay? So if you have your Bibles, find Ruth and follow along as I read chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after they'd lived there about ten years, both Machlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown your, to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And at this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. When you go, I will, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where I die, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Lord has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, the narrator of this story is going to give us some clues as to what's happening. You know, uh, in, in fairy tales, you know, you get once upon a time, and that gives you a clue as to what kind of story this is. Well, in this story, we get in the days when the judges ruled. Now, that's important. The judges were uh, men, and mostly, although there was one woman, Deborah, who was also among the judges, and they were people who ruled between the days of Joshua when they conquered the land and Saul when the kingship was initiated. And there's about 400 years in between those two periods. And they were called the judges. Part of what they did was decide legal matters, but, but also what they did was rescued Israel from her enemies. And initially, the period of the judges starts out pretty well. You have, uh, there were two old men who went, into, who went into the land. They were the oldest men in Israel. They were both in their 80s, Caleb and Joshua. They were the two faithful spies that went in under Moses uh, to spy out the land. And all the other spies, the other 10, said, uh, there's giants there. We were like grasshoppers in their sight and also in ours, and we can't go in. And they rebel against God, and God says, fine, you don't want to take the land, you won't get to take the land. And they wander in the desert, and everybody dies, including Moses, except for these two guys, Caleb and Joshua. The first of the judges is Caleb's son-in-law, Othniel. And he is this great, shining example of biblical, faithful, God-honoring manhood. And he's great, okay? If you want to name your kid something, name him Othniel, right? Okay, or Joshua, the Lord saves, you know, one of these great names. And Othniel is this great example. Well, after Othniel dies, all the judges get progressively worse and worse and worse and worse. To where the last major judge that you study is Samson, who everybody knows Samson's story. He is a, he is a perennial skirt chaser. Um, seriously, he is, okay? Uh, it gets him into trouble. He eventually it gets his head shaved. He goes blind. He winds up committing suicide in the temple of Dagon. And, it, and the period of the judges is not an exalted, wonderful time. You know, you would think, hey, there's no central government. What a great time to be free. No, there's no central government, and so everybody just does whatever they can get away with. In fact, that's the theme of the book is, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did whatever was right in his own eyes. This is a bad time to live. And the period of the nation goes into these cycles of they rebel against God, and so God sends judgment and sends an oppressor to rule over them, and then they get free when they repent. And then, they, and then the repentance doesn't last, and so then they fall back into rebellion against God, and so then they get oppressed again. And over time, the cycles of repentance get shorter and the judgment gets longer. And it's a bad time to live. And so this is the setting in which this story is occurring. The nation is under judgment. That's why they're experiencing a famine. God told them, you won't have famine. Your wives won't miscarry, etc., 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 if you obey me. 
That was part of the promises of the Old Testament law, that they would have fertility on the land, fertility in their herds, fertility in their homes. But they have not obeyed God. And so they are experiencing a famine. And the guy who says, my God is king, that's his name, that, that the true God is king, is not king over his life. And he decides to disobey the law and to leave the land. You're not to leave the land of Israel. But he sells off his stuff to his relatives, and he bugs out for Moab. Now, Moab, you may not know much about it, but it's a land on the other side of the Jordan River in what's now the country of Jordan. And the people there were pagans. They were worshipers of a god named Chemosh. And Chemosh was a nasty little deity who required human sacrifice as part of fertility rites that the people engaged in. Okay, If you want more detail than that, I can provide it, but it's kind of gross, the worship that these people were involved in. They would a lot of times wind up burning their children in the fire as sacrifice to this deity. And this is the place this man decides to take his family. And while they're there... The man, I believe, as part of the judgment of God for his rebellion against him, the man dies. And he leaves his wife with his two sons, living as foreigners in a foreign land among pagan people. And the boys, you know, get to that age where uh, they start looking around for a wife. And who's available? A couple of pagan girls, Ruth and Orpah. And so they marry pagan women. And they are living as pagans, essentially, in a pagan country outside of the land where they're supposed to be. And eventually, these two boys, uh, weakling and dying, uh, live up to their names and die. And they leave no children behind. And they leave these three ladies. Now, this is a day prior to Social Security and Medicaid, okay? Um, it's a patriarchal society on top of that, which means that if you're not, if you're a woman who's unconnected to a man, you are vulnerable. If you're not a daughter of a, of a father and you're living with him, then you're unprotected. If you're not connected to your brother or your husband, then you're vulnerable. And you might well starve, as a matter of fact. Especially as a foreigner living in a foreign land because you have no rights under under the law of the land at the time uh, as to how you should be provided for. And say, so Naomi does the only thing that's logical and says, well, at least I won't be a foreigner if I go home. I'll still be vulnerable, I'll still be unprotected, but at least I won't be a foreigner and I'll have more rights in Israel than in Moab. And so she decides, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home. And she says, look, I've got nobody to provide for me in my old age. And she means that when she's thinking that. But you know what she's forgetting? She's forgetting this, that in tough circumstances, we need to trust God even when we have questions about what's happened. 
Okay? Naomi is an innocent party in all of this. She has just done what she was supposed to do, followed her husband off into this pagan place. And she has lots of questions, and we're going to see later in the story what her questions are. That God has afflicted me, he has abandoned me, he has mistreated me. But even in the midst of the times when we have to ask our questions, and, we, and God allows that, by the way, there are places in Psalms where that's loudly expressed. Even in the midst of tough circumstances, we still trust God. And then on top of that, I want you to see this, that, that when death comes, it's very tempting to ask, where is God in all of this? Because if God is God, he has to be God in the face of death. Amen? It's, death is the most serious circumstance we ever face. Swine flu does not hold a, can, a candle to actually dying from it. Right? And some people do. Some people die from cancer, or they die from osteoporosis, or they die from Alzheimer's, or they die from intestinal problems, or they die from whatever, car crashes, whatever, right? In the life that we live, a lot of times we face death. And when death comes, it's really tempting to say, where is God? And what I want you to see as we're going through this story is that God is still there, and he's still providing. It's subtle, and you might miss it, but God is still there. He's still providing. And so she decides to go home, um, and her daughter-in-laws, they love their mother-in-law. Now, this is you know that this is a unique story, right? Uh, they love their mother-in-law, <laughs> all right, and they want to go with her, right? Uh, they want to go with her, and then she says to them both, no, no, stay here. Go, you shouldn't be with your mother-in-law. You should be with your mother. Go back to your mother's house, she tells them. And normally, you'd call it your father's house, but she's trying to draw a contrast and say, look, mother-in-laws are great, but your mother is who you should be with. And and she gives them this long list of reasons why they should do this. I'm not going to have another husband. And even if I had a husband, I'm not going to have children. And even if I did have children, you're not going to wait for the required period of time for them to grow up to become your husbands. That doesn't make any sense. Go home, go home, go home, go home. And, and there's two reactions that are kind of contrasted in the story. One is Orpah's reaction. She's the... It, it literally means the graceful necked one. I don't know what that means exactly. Apparently, she had a nice neck, all right? <laughs> but, uh, or looked pretty with jewelry or something. I don't know. But anyway, she goes back not just to her mother's house, but to, and this is how it's described, to her gods, plural. She was a pagan. She is a pagan. She's going back to paganism, right? Uh, and she decides, you know, look, I'm going to take Naomi's advice. It's good advice, really. It makes good logical sense. And she goes back. Um, she says, look, this doesn't make sense. If I do go with you, it's a prescription for having three people go naked and hungry instead of just one, so you can go starve on your own. I'm going back to mom. Okay? And it makes good sense. But Ruth does something different. She, is, she has love for her mother-in-law. 
and love for her mother-in-law's God on top of that. Uh, she, goes, she, is, she exhibits a love that goes beyond what is expected to offer what's needed. Naomi is old and needs help because Ruth loves her mother-in-law. She doesn't do the expected thing. She does the necessary thing. And Naomi doesn't realize it, but she needs Ruth. And so Ruth goes with her. And what's more is that Ruth doesn't do kind of a calculation of the pros and cons. She doesn't, you know, kind of weigh it out and, well, okay, um, you know, I can see that on the one side I starved to death with you, but on the other side, at least we'd be together. <laughs> she doesn't think in those kind of pro and con, plus and minus kind of ways. She's just loving. Uh, love is not logical. It's not logical. Because the logical thing, the socially expected thing, if your husband died, was to go home to mom and dad's and have them arrange another marriage for you so that they wouldn't be burdened with you and that you'd be provided for. Again, patriarchal society, very different from ours. Okay, um, But it's in spite of what would be logical and what would be expected and what would make sense that she goes with Naomi. And she makes this great declaration. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you, the God you worship will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And she even invokes a curse on herself. She says, may God deal with me as severely as he wants to if I break my vow. Now, this is, this is not a wedding here, obviously, right? These two women are, are, are friends and relatives but it's so, it's so much a demonstration of what real love does that it's used a lot of times at weddings. And you can even get those Hebrew scripture uh, rings, you know, that inscribe some of this on the inside in Hebrew, right? Um, because it's this great shining example of friendship and love one for another. And it contrasts sharply with what the other daughter-in-law has done. And she and Ruth does this because she has, I believe, come to worship Naomi's God. And here at a time when Naomi is convinced that God has abandoned her, Ruth is trusting God and saying, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going with you. I think it's the right thing to do, and I'm going to follow your God just as I have. And they go home. And when they get there... Uh, she, you know, you would think that Naomi, as she's going along, she doesn't have a husband anymore and she doesn't have her sons, that you would think that she would, have, would not forget about this friend that she has in Ruth. Because Ruth is this steadfast, loving friend. In fact, one of the themes of the book is uh, the use of the word hesed, uh, which doesn't translate well into English. But it's usually a characteristic that God exhibits. And it means something like steadfast love. It's probably the best translation. That there's ongoing, faithful, loyal, persevering love one for another. And Ruth is demonstrating that here. Uh, and God is going to demonstrate it to these two ladies later. We're going to see that. But here she's got this steadfast, loyal chesed that you got to get. There's kind of like, it's like phlegm, H-E-S-E-D, okay, uh, how you spell this. But, because uh, I can't even do the guttural 
uh, CH there at the beginning. But it's this steadfast, loyal, persevering love. And here's Ruth exhibiting it for her mother-in-law. And notice what she says. When she gets to town, she hits town and everybody's having a party. Man, can this be Naomi? Wow, it's been a long time. It's been 10 years. Where have you been? How are you doing? Uh, right? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me the pleasant one. Call me bitter. The Lord has made my life bitter. He's afflicted me. She's just, she's like one of those, you know, you remember the Muppet show where they had those two guys up in the top that sit on the balcony and just rag on everybody, okay? This is Naomi right here. Call me bitter. Change my name. I'm going to go by bitter from now on. <laughs> okay? And she is going into all of this grumbling and complaining and whatever. And notice something that's interesting, okay? Two points here I want to make in this part of the story. Number one, bitterness blinds us to reality. Here she's got this friend who is going to help her and serve her and be, be with her and support her and provide for her in a way that a, a husband or a son would. And she doesn't even, she doesn't even recognize it. And here's the other one, that bitterness quickly turns to selfishness. Let me read this maybe a little differently, okay? See if you can pick up what her problem is. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Lord has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Um, notice how often she says me, me, my, I, mine. You know, she's had a massive attack of the me monster, right? She has had all of her bitterness allow her to turn inward on herself. And she says, the, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty with nothing. Really? Who's this person <laughs> standing right next to you? And her bitterness has allowed her to turn selfish. And all she's thinking about is her. It's me and my needs. And it's me and mine and I. And all she's thinking about is her. She's become bitter. And that's true. You should, you should call this woman bitter because she is. But she is forgetting about the blessing God has given her in Ruth. And bitterness is not, by the way, a God-honoring way of going through life. Amen? Um, now, looking at this story, and, you know, this is different from, you know, like a, one of the Paul's letters or one of the Gospels or something, where the point is not just laying there on the surface, obvious for us to pick up, Okay. Uh, it's a narrative, it's a story, and we're meant to kind of learn what God is trying to teach us kind of along the way as we're reading it. But a couple things here that I want to, to just highlight for us as we wrap up. Number one, obey God. Obey God. Um, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that if you obey God, that everything in your life will just go fine. It won't. I'll promise you of that. Okay, 
Deciding to obey God does not mean you get king's X over ever having someone close to you die, ever getting a chronic illness, ever having your marriage break up, ever having a kid that's horribly disappointing and causes you pain for the rest of your life. It's not, there's no guarantee of any of that in Scripture. But in the midst of that, it's still important to obey God. And sometimes the reason that we experience the stuff that we experience is because we have disobeyed God. And Elimelech clearly did. He did not act like God was his king. He went off to live, in, live among the pagans. And so you need to obey God because sometimes the sin that we get into has large negative ripple effect consequences on the people that are part of that are closest to us. Naomi is suffering not really because of her own actions, but because of the actions of her husband. And following that, the actions of her sons, which they learn from the old man, but nevertheless, they're still responsible. And she is dealing with consequences, not of her own sin, but of theirs. So we need to obey God. Number two, be a faithful friend. You know, Naomi is not always this wonderfully kind, easy-to-get-along-with person. She ignores her friend, says, God left me with nothing. How did that make you feel, Ruth? Um, But be a good friend. You know, sometimes when, when somebody's going through a tough time, one of the things that they need is a friend who sticks by them. And who's willing to go through the pain of it with them. Third thing here. Don't give in to bitterness. Bitterness really will cause you to miss the blessings that God has to give you in your life. If you start focusing on all the things that haven't gone the way you hoped and dreamed and fantasized and thought that they should. Then you'll go through life a bitter, nasty, angry, miserable person. And you will miss all of the blessing that God is giving you, even in the midst of that. And finally, trust God. Trust God, even in the middle of tough circumstances. Trust Him, even when you can't think of one good reason why you should, and a thousand reasons why you shouldn't. He will provide, and He will show Himself faithful. He always does. We can't always see how God is working. can't always see it. But we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him according, and those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so we need to trust God, even, in, even though we can't see. And, and to tell the Lord, on top of that, be honest with him. Uh, about how we're feeling. You know, one of the great things about the Bible is that it's not all sunshine and roses. You know, you read a psalm like Psalm 69. It's one of my favorite psalms. It starts out this way, and I'll just kind of paraphrase for us. It says, Lord, hear my cry for help. The water is up to my neck. I am sinking in the deep, and there is no foothold. My voice is worn out from calling for help. My eyes are failing from looking for you. Are you looking for me? Be 
David in that psalm is honest with God about how he feels. And yet he is looking for God and trusting him even though he feels like, I'm drowning here, Lord. I'm going down for the last time. Where are you at? Are you going to rescue me or not? I'm going to die here. He's still trusting God. Still trusting God. And Ruth and Naomi can't see how this is going to work out. It's going to work out beautifully. Ruth is going to wind up in the line of David the king and following that in the line of Jesus Christ. She who, who married a, a man who, and who had no children, who had a mother-in-law who had no husband, who goes back to a land hoping to somehow come up with enough food, winds up provided for through the will of God in a way that she could have never imagined. But trust God even when you can't see him. He's there. He's working. And you, you catch that, and it's just subtle. Here's this last verse. Now the barley harvest was just beginning. Let's pray.